Good afternoon. Jeff Stevens here. Listening to some set for the fall again. Love these guys. Look them up. Give these guys a listen. They're a phenomenal band. You will love them if you like rock music. A lot of the guys I work with do. You guys will find they are a great band. Some good hard rock. Um, I'm going to come to you today to talk to you about Psalm 118. Um, something hit me a few days ago. And uh, Psalm 118's got tons of like these single verse, um, you know, messages that are easy to paint on your earth tone wall or to stick on your coffee cup or on your, uh, you know, Christian bookstore t-shirt that you're going to wear around. Um, and you're going to show everybody what a good Christian you are by wearing this, um, cool t-shirt. Um, but Psalm 118, uh, phenomenal Psalm, um, which I think we overlook a lot of the reality of what's going on in this psalm. And they are things that should be talked about from the pulpit and would help us in our resiliency as believers and help us to understand that this walk that we're in is not always easy and that it is not intended for our happiness Uh, Not that God doesn't want us to be happy, but there's just a lot of stuff going on in the world as you see it. And those days when you get unhappy, we need some perspective in our lives. And Psalm 118 can give us perspective when we look at it from the right perspective. So a couple things. I'm just going to read the psalm, but I I just want to talk to you about the psalm a little bit. So this is uh, one of King David's psalms. And of course, it's a Hallel psalm. So Hallel, which is one of the root word. Uh, it's praise, but it's, you know, as we get the word hallelujah from it, Psalms 113 through 118 are the Hallel Psalms. These are the Psalms uh, sung at Jewish holidays and such. Uh, um, and I liken it to, um, if you sing it during high holy days, the Jews would know, would have known them um, well and, uh, and may still. Um, and it, you liken it to like Christmas songs. You hear Christmas songs come on every year on the radio. You hear them, you know them, you understand them, you sing along with other people. The Jews would be like this with the Hallel Psalms. It's also uh, one of the Psalms that's considered a Mashil Psalm, which is a Psalm of instruction. Um, and, you know, some um, commentaries will go into this a little bit how uh, this Psalm, Psalm 118, is a Psalm that gives. Uh, the people uh, of Israel instruction on how they should be rejoicing in the Lord. Um, just to talk about King David here a little bit, the, you know, King David's got a lot going on in his life. And this psalm is going to say a lot about his attitude towards understanding his God about understanding his God's long-suffering, about understanding his God's providence, sovereignty, and promise for the future, as, as well as what's going on in David's life, which not everything is perfect. We get this picture of David just sitting on a throne and everything is cool. You know, he's rich, he's the king, but David is enduring quite a bit. So we're not going to go verse by verse when it comes to uh, breaking everything down. But let's get a a quick overview 
So as we read Psalm 118, we will begin here in verse 1. And this is from the ESV. It says this, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I call on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me. Surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly, and the right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. There's a ton in there. This could be hours of uh, pulling this whole psalm apart and what was going on specifically uh, in Israel and in David's life. Um, just let's look at David just for a minute. So, you know, the story of King David is one that every kid who grows up in church gets to hear. David slays Goliath. He is a hero. But you realize David was not an easy hero. This story is about Jesus. It's not about David. And it's not even about, um, it, it's not about David being some sort of special character or special person or obedient, or as, as we say, uh, you know, David um, was a man after God's own heart, where that word uh, would actually be mine, uh, a man after God's own mind, where he thought and dwelled on the Lord. He thought about the Lord regularly. He always gave his uh, successes and failures over to the Lord. David was, his perspective was right here. He knew he was a, a failing human, but he just gave, continued to give his life to the Lord. Mind you, just if you will, for a moment, David's life is not perfect 
at all. In the beginning, when we look in, um, you know, the book of Samuel, Saul um, did not like David, right? So we look at this power struggle between Saul and David and to the point where he even has a plot to kill him. You know, David, at some point, um, Absalom uh, tries to undermine David. He is going to try to take over the kingdom from him. These plots against him never seem to cease. Now, David's his own worst enemy in some some ways as well, right? Where we see that uh, David doesn't do a very good job um, with his uh, the wife of Uriah, and he um, takes her in uh, as his wife. He you know, has sex with her, puts him out to battle to die. And in 2 Samuel, the text is really clear here where he is told, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So David is going to live in a kingdom. He's going to rule a kingdom and, and nug out this kingship in battle and in warfare where it just never seems to stop. There's always, always something going on for him. And this psalm is quite clear where it talks about all the nations surrounding him. It's like forever he is just being attacked and he likens it to bees. You know, if you think about if you've ever been stung by a bee, if there's multiple bees, that might not kill you. But it's like all the time they've surrounded and they're always stinging him. He's always cutting them off. He's pushing hard against them. He's falling and the Lord is helping him. And he gives this to the Lord. It is he, The Lord is his strength in his song. He is his savior. You see, David dealt with this at such a level psychologically that he would reach the Lord even in earlier Psalms. We read way back in Psalm 51. You just look at verse 1 through 3 in that Psalm and where he, he's crying out because he knows his transgressions against Uriah, where he says, uh, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And he goes on in Psalm 51 to talk about it a little bit more, but he is he knows he's done wrong. He's a pretty awful guy. He's you know a very carnal guy, um, He's got a lot. There's not much that isn't in his reach. When he wants something, he gets to have it. And uh, this is something that burdens him. He's going to pay for this in a very visceral way throughout his tenure where, you know, there's always conflict in his home. And there's always conflict outside of his home, always at the walls. Now, why bring all this up in a, a psalm that seems like, and there's probably 20 different worship songs and and uh, a whole bunch of hymns written just out of Psalm 118 because it's got so much great stuff in it. The Lord's my helper, you know, his love endures forever. Uh, take refuge in the Lord. There's, you know, the Lord is my strength in my song. Um, but this is the one that got me recently. So you've all seen this before, whether you've been in the Christian bookstore or you've been at the mall. Or you're a little kid in church because you sang this song. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
What does that mean? This is the day. And you know, I get this picture of the, you know, I'm going to do my daily devotion, uh, you know, sit in the corner of the couch, get a warm cup of coffee. I'm going to read for five minutes. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have my quiet time, you know, my reading glasses out. I think to myself, this is the day that the Lord has made this right here in the comfort of my home. You know, the, it's nice and toasty warm. I'm about to turn on the news. I read from the, the, the word of God for a couple minutes. You know, that it's the verse is written on my coffee cup. It's written on my bookmark. I've got it on a plaque on the wall. This is the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice in it. I'm going to be glad in it. What does it mean this? Does that mean this day, the day that I'm sitting here and everything is easy and nothing is really all that hard? Does it mean this day where, you know, the hardest thing that's going to happen to me is my kids do something I don't like or my spouse is not um, considering me to be the number one in their life? Is this the day that the Lord has made where, you know, I can rejoice and be glad and that the worship at my church was just right. The laser light show was on point, just the right amount of fog coming out of the fog machine. And the the worship pastor got his, he got his voice just right. And he was singing the songs just in a way that it really touched me. And my little hairs were tingling on my arm. And I, I, I like to say things to my friends as I'm leaving, like, oh, I could really feel the Holy Spirit move in the room. And it's like, is that really the day that the Lord made? I don't think that's what David's talking about here. Let's just for a second consider this. Um, his steadfast love endures forever. And, and we're going to add some words, not in an isogetical fashion, but just to give it context here. We'll start at the beginning. Give thanks to the Lord. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. In the midst of all the conflict that King David has going on, there is death going on outside the walls. There is a war going on. The enemy is attacking him and he is saying his steadfast love endures forever. There's a promise for Israel. He is going to uh, succeed. God is going to win. He is going to fulfill his promise. He never leaves us. He took us to the promised land. We live here. We are a part of his plan his steadfast love endures forever, even in the midst of what we have going on, even in the midst of my transgression, even in the midst of people hating me, even in the midst of people I know and love dying. As we move on in this thing, he talks about his own distress. Out of my distress, I call on the Lord and he answered me and set me free. Well, what did he set him free from? He set his heart free and focuses him on the hope Okay, so he's on his side and he won't fear. He's going to take refuge in his God. He's going to take refuge in him way above taking any refuge in any man or any prince or let's just keep going or any pastor or preacher or teacher or lesson or book or politician. Okay, we take refuge in the Lord. David's being very clear here that it doesn't matter how you vote. It doesn't matter what happens at all during the war. It doesn't matter who passes around you, who decides to get saved, who doesn't get saved, what what songs they sang at church, whether you liked them or not, or whether you felt the spirit move. Or it, all those things don't matter. You take refuge in him because he is the hope 
He is the hope and he is the promise for our life. That is where we find our joy. We don't find our joy in just what is happening today. Whether or not that cup of coffee gets cold while I'm doing my morning devotion or not is no sign whether or not God loves me. Um, He's going to move on in this and talk about this battle that I already brought up, right? The nation surrounded him and they cut him off. So this is a constant battle for King David. He has a lot of stuff going on. As a matter of fact, he he says in this, I wish pushed hard so that I was falling. So he's already falling. He's a sinner and he knows he's a sinner and he's transgressed against God and he's taken his friend's wife and he's got people that want to kill him, but he's getting pushed to the brink where he's like, I don't know if I can handle this anymore. Where he finds his strength is in God. And he says this, the Lord is my strength and my song. We're going to start looking towards Jesus here, right? So King David is going to start singing this song to him. He's, you know, the God that he's singing to his Lord is not just his strength. He is his salvation. This is the look towards the future. He's singing a glad song of salvation. He's going to sing about the right hand of the Lord. Who's seated at the right hand of the Lord? Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Lord. We know this from the New Testament. Now, David's looking forward here. So the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. This is a direct cry towards Jesus. Now think of this, where David says these things in verses 17 and 18. I shall not die, but I shall live in the and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. What a picture of Jesus, that Jesus comes and does not die. That although he gives him to the cross to take on the sin of the world, he does not die. He conquers sin and death and comes up from the, from the grave to go to be seated at the right hand of the Father, to rule and reign in sovereignty forever and ever. Um, I'm not going to go through all the rest of the verses here, but as we move on, we're going to see more things likened to to Christ. Like, uh, um, I thank you, you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Think of this. Christ comes to be our salvation, and he's rejected by his own, and he becomes the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone of our salvation. We build our entire foundation of our faith on Jesus Christ. Without him, there is no foundation in faith. He is the only, right? The only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. Um, And it's the Lord's doing. He's going to give this to him. And then he gets to, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So what is this? What does the word this mean? This day? It means the day that Christ bore your sin, the day that he bore your death, the day that he bore your transgression, the day that he became the payment for, the atonement of, the propitiation for your sin. That's the day that the Lord made. From the foundations of the earth, God planned that specific day that if you should believe in him, that he would bear your sin and your death and your transgression, that you would not have to bear it on your own. He takes it from you. And he cries out to him after this, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. This success is not 
the success of the uh, Prosperity Preacher Church where you plant a seed and end up with some sort of weird amount of money in your bank account. But this is success in Jesus Christ where we get to live in eternity forever and ever with him because of the work he did on the cross. And then he moves on to say this in verse 26. A direct cry to Jesus here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. From our perspective, he has already come. And it says here, bind the festal sacrifice with cords. And what this means is, but of course, David being a good Jew, they would have had to sacrifice to God. But think of it this way. This wasn't to bind them like to tie them up, but this would be to adorn them with um, a dressing. So uh, there's going to be a sacrifice to the altar. We dress them up. So Christ has already come. He has come and laid down his life for us. And he thanks him in the end of this by saying, you are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. He finishes up. Psalm 118, the last of the halal or hallelujah psalms, the same way he started by saying his steadfast love endures forever. This is the day the Lord has made. That day is the day Christ took away your sin on the cross. And this is important for us Christians is as we wear those t-shirts and drink from those mugs that have got Bible verses on it, we should know where we're getting these from because there are days where it's going to feel like we're in battle and we're at war and things are coming to us from every direction like bees. Uh, You know, things are not right in our life. The finances aren't right. Uh, We can't get our uh, head around why we continue to return to substances that we need to take. Our marriage is not good. Our kids misbehave. The car is broken down. The house is in disrepair. Uh, what you, Name it. People go through things. It doesn't change the fact that this is the day the Lord has made and we should be rejoicing and be glad in it because our hope is not in today. Our hope is in forever. Our hope is in eternity. And we get this wrong when we paint these things on our walls and wear them on our shirts and we are horrible to each other and to ourselves and we forget to rejoice in him in the midst of the pain see here's another perspective thing here if you're sitting in the united states of america today we're in the most prosperous time in the most prosperous country at the most prosperous point in human history of any place at any time in the world in any region on the planet There are people still suffering for their faith. There are people still dying for their faith. There are people starving to death. There are people being attacked, murdered, raped, killed, traded on the human uh, uh, slave market, which, of course, also happens right here by the millions every year. So very sad. And it does not change the fact, because of the suffering, that this is the day the Lord has made and we should be rejoicing and be glad in it. You see, we've become so soft living in this culture that we have these days where we think, I'm not happy. Things aren't lining up right. You know, for the last four weeks, my spouse and I have not gotten along. We're not intimate. We're not friendly. We don't, they spend too much. They don't do this right or do that right. Our kids are out of line. Our Whatever. I mean, we've already gone over these and 
is it still okay to wear that t-shirt or drink from that coffee mug or to have that sign up on our wall that says, this is the day that the Lord has made and let us rejoice and be glad in it. Because not that God doesn't want you to be happy, but the importance here is he wants you to be hopeful and he wants you to be joyful in the fact that he did the work for you already. He did that work on the cross so that you could have hope in him, that you could be joyful in his second coming. And sometimes it just takes a little perspective to realize that. So I'd say this, how do you respond to the times in your life when things are not going perfectly? How do you respond outwardly to the people that are around you, even though they're tough? And how do you respond in your prayer life and your devotion life? Do you continue to get into the Word of God and read and pray? Do you continue to take an exegetical look at the Word of God? Do you pull open some Psalms like the Hallel Psalms and just read them? In times when you need a perspective, pull open, start at Psalm 113. You read one a day through 118, gain some perspective on your life. Look at how King David was going through all this junk, but somehow found the space, the time, and the joy to look up at God with his hands raised and just say, God, I'm going to give thanks to you. You are good and you are steadfast and your steadfast love endures forever. That you're my God and I give thanks to you. Are we able to do that? Are you able to do it today? I know it's tough for us. There's a lot of us dealing with a lot of junk in our lives. There's a lot of us dealing with stuff that's hard to go through. Sometimes it just takes a little perspective change to get us back on track. So my prayer for you today is pull out Psalm 118, read over it a couple times and look at this. And think about that first. Think about 118 verse 24. When you look at this is the day that the Lord has made. Are you looking at that day where he suffered so badly for you, so badly for your sin, for your transgression, for the sins of the world, that you would remember it and that you would rejoice and that you would be glad in that specific day. God bless you all. Stay on the grind. Good afternoon. Jeff Stevens here. In this voting day, November 3rd, 2020. Listen to good old Waylon. It's a mystery. Sing about America. Big day today. There'll be a lot of upset people by the end of the day. It's going to be an interesting uh, afternoon, evening. We see uh, see the polls start to unfold for all of us and see which candidate has come ahead in the end. Um, but I didn't uh, come on this podcast today to talk about voting. Um, I came on to talk about something that we're, it's going to get skimmed over uh, in most churches this time of year. Uh, we're going to talk about it at our church this evening. We're going to do a little bit of a study, less of a Bible study, a little bit more of a history lesson. It's got a little bit of Bible in it, but uh, the history of the church as we know it, especially in the United States. And uh, the the big topic is going to be the Reformation. 
you know, the, of course, Halloween was just here and a lot of churches that do not celebrate or try to redeem Halloween uh, and just make it a day about candy and dress up. They'll practice Reformation Day, dress up as reformers. Uh, they'll learn a little bit about the Reformation. But I thought it was worthwhile. Um, we skim over it every year as a real minor kind of holiday. I guess it's not necessarily a holy day, but it's such an important day in modern history in why is it? And I thought that it would be important to take a little bit of time, although this might not be as long as some of the other podcasts, just to go over what really is the Reformation? Why is it so important? Um, you know, for a modern Reformationalist, you hear the word or the name Martin Luther kicked around quite a bit and the 95 Thesis. And we have Many have heard the story of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Thesis to the church at the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517, which is basically a big long list of 95 things he disagreed with with the Pope. Uh, and this kicks off the uh, Reformation, or as Catholics like to call it, it kicks off the protest. It's the lead into Protestantism. Um, so a couple different perspectives there. But what is it? Where does it come from? Is it really where we get our modern um, Reformed church today? Does it really start with Martin Luther? Was Martin Luther uh, important in this? Um, and how does it all play out for us today? And why should we know a little bit about it? And what about it should we take with us uh, at the end of the day when we're doing our Bible study, when we are focusing on tradition, and um, how does it all play out for us? So let's just talk about Martin Luther for a minute. So I said 1517, he nails the 95 Thesis to the door. So really his big thing was Martin Luther, um, you know, he was a monk who lived in poverty. And he was really against indulgences. Now, indulgences was a practice in the Catholic Church where you could pay basically to get rid of uh, sin. So sin that you had, you could pay off. Uh, you would go to the church and give them money and it would get rid of some of your sin. Or it would either get rid of sin here or it would reduce time that you spent in purgatory, which the Catholic Church believes is a place that you go where you, uh, between here and hell, um, or here in heaven where you're saved, but you are not quite allowed into heaven yet. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, but it got really bad by the 1500s, all the way from the 1100s to the 1500s. The Catholic church is really basically just selling salvation is what they're doing. They are completely sold out for money. The Pope is rich. You know, they have huge, big buildings. They have castles and churches that dwarf anybody's home. People are in poverty and they have like traveling indulgence salesmen going around, um, you know, telling people if they don't give their last dime that uh, their loved ones are in purgatory, stay there and won't make it into heaven. So they're pulling at their heartstrings. So this really was, it was demonic. It was evil. Martin Luther doesn't agree. So he nails this. Now, nailing something to the church door would not have been a, a, an odd practice for the time, um, kind of like your bulletin board in your church. Uh, this was Martin Luther's way of sharing some of what he's studying with the, with the church. Uh, makes it to the, to the Pope, all the way up to the Pope. Well, the Pope basically 
puts out a papal bull. He he releases a letter uh, addressing Martin Luther. Of course, there had been people over the years who the church had had to squash because they were kind of going off the rails and not agreeing with the church or the church's theology or the pope. And uh, Martin Luther fell in that category. And so what they do is they have the pope write him a letter and say, hey, man, you've got a certain period of time to write another letter retracting what you said, um, and then you need to repent of your sin or you're going to be excommunicated from the church. So he receives this. So 1517 is when he writes his letter. So by 1520, so 500 years ago this year, his letter is due. And the Pope is basically like, you got a certain number of days left or it's coming to an end. You are going away. Well, in the meantime, um, Martin Luther is writing letters and he's debating his contemporary theologians, Catholic priests, Catholics. um, And at some point, In 1520, one of his contemporaries essentially accuses him of being a Hussite. So Jan Hus or Jan Hus was a Czech priest who was also against um, indulgences. And he really also wanted his people to be able to read the Bible in their own language and Czech and study in their own language. Uh, And he was pretty mad at the church. Well, this is about 1417. And the church doesn't really give him much of a chance. They basically say, hey, uh, come to Rome and we're going we're gonna to take care of it for you. Um, he ends up at a church in his papal robes and they set him on fire and kill him. So um, Jan Hus had a, was pretty extreme as far as reformers are concerned. He had gone against a number of the, the things in the church. I won't get into everything. I've kind of gone over him before in the past. Uh, you can listen back to some of the early podcasts. But um, to be accused as a Catholic of being a Hussite would have been truly heretical because Catholic priests, monks, uh, sisters, brothers, they would all thought, no, I, I don't want to be a Hussite. That's truly heretical. So after being called a Hussite and he says, no, I am not, he goes back and he starts reading some of Jan Hus's um, uh, documents. And then he realizes in his reading, hold on a second, maybe I am kind of like this guy. And maybe I do need to stick with my conviction that the Pope does not have all this authority to make people pay for their transgression or pay for their sin by paying indulgences to try to get their way out of their sinful state and from, you know, their physical state into heaven by passing through uh, this place purgatory. <clears throat> so this is the 500-year mark this year in 2020 that this letter goes back to the Pope, basically with Martin Luther saying, no, sir, this isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen at all. So um, some big disagreements uh, going on in the church at the time. And, of course, we have a lot of other um kind of reformers poking their heads up at the time. The Catholic Church points to Martin Luther because he was a Catholic. So the Catholic Church will lump all Christians in the world that are not Catholic, especially in the West, as Protestants. So where does that word come from? So the word Protestant really at first appears uh, what is called the uh, the Diet of uh, Spire. It's 1529. 
So you got a Roman Catholic emperor in Germany, Charles Charles V, and uh, he proceeds over this thing, and he allowed each ruler to choose whether to administer the Edict of Worms, which was uh, which banned Martin Luther's writings at all and declared him a heretic. So in April 1529, there was a protest against the decision, and it was read on behalf of 14 of the free cities in Germany, and six Lutheran princes declared that the majority decision did not uh, bind them because they were not party to it, and that it forced to choose between obedience to God and obedience to Caesar, and they must be obedient to God. So what happens as a result of this is they appear either to the General Council of Christendom um, or to Synod, the whole German nation, and this protest became known as the revolt of the Protestants. So the church looks at uh, Protestants as people who are revolting against the church teaching of paying indulgences uh, underneath the guidance of Martin Luther, who, um, you know, by now is, uh, has been excommunicated for sure from the church. So this is where it all kind of begins, the name Protestant. And it was attached uh, not just to Martin Luther, but also of uh, Zwingli and John Calvin, any of the Swiss reformers, uh, Holland and England and Scotland. And then it, it pushes all the way up into the 17th century. Uh, and most of those guys would refer to themselves as Reformed, <laughs> but uh, the Catholic Church would refer to them as Protestant. Uh, by the 16th century, um, Protestant referred primarily to two great schools of thought that arose, which would be uh, Lutheran and then Reformed Church, the Lutheran Reformed Church. The, the Protestant is what they're kind of bulked under. Um, and then in, in England, the word was used to denote uh, Orthodox Protestants uh, and those who were regarded by Anglicans as unorthodox, such as Baptists or Quakers. Um, so the Roman Catholics basically throw everybody in this mix, any of the Anglicans, Anabaptists, uh, um, people who followed Zwingli, people who followed uh, uh, Luther, basically anybody that's out there, they're saying they're Protestants. But, you know, we really have some pre-Reformation Christians, or the faith continued to move on after the first century without the Roman Catholic Church. Although the Roman Catholic Church does not like to admit this because they feel that they are the cornerstone for faith for the world, although that is absolutely heretical. You know, you have churches all over the world. Now remember, in Jesus' time, Rome dominated, right? So Rome continues to grow, and up through the fourth century, uh, we have Rome continuing to grow and pressing out everywhere. So, of course, when uh, Christianity under Constantine becomes the uh, religion of the state, because they were a theocracy by that point, um, it becomes easy for Christendom to spread, and the Roman Catholic Church would have been the state religion. That doesn't mean Christians did not exist in the midst of it. It just meant that the state religion was Catholic. And it pressed it into basically everywhere that the Romans reached. But there were churches that existed all over that were not Roman Catholic, to include Eastern Orthodox, which is similar. 
but uh, you know we have good record of plenty Paulicians um, in, in Armenian groups, which you know from the five hundreds, and then um, another Armenian group, uh, the Tondrakians. Um, they, you've got the Bogomils all the way up to the tenth century and the twelfth century, the Arnaldists, um, the Petrobrugians, uh, the Henricans the Brethren of the Free Spirit, the Apostolic Brethren. These are, you know, up through time as you look at these things. Uh, we see that the uh, Neo-Adamites from the 13th to 15th century, um, some of the more popular ones that are kind of your classical proto-Protestants would have been like Peter Waldo with the Waldesians, uh, which starts in, you know, the 1100s, mid to late 1100s. Uh, you know, preach strict adherence to the Bible and simplicity and poverty uh, against Catholic dogmas. Um, he didn't believe in things like purgatory or transubstantiation. So these were things that were not new prior to what the Catholic Church would call Protestantism. Of course, one of the most famous ones, John Wycliffe. He's an English theologian, right? He's a professor from Oxford and what he really wanted was people to read the Bible in, a, in their own vernacular. Uh, he wanted people to read it in English, so he really sets out, and Wycliffe is, of course, excommunicated from the church uh, in the 1300s. Um, and, you know, he is a, a proto-reformer. And then, if, like I spoke of earlier, Jan Hus with the Hussites, you're talking the early 15th century is a Czech Catholic priest, and he's eventually burned in 1415 as a heretic. Um by the Pope. Um, and very similarly, he wanted people to read the Bible in his own language. Uh, he was influenced a little bit by John Wycliffe. Uh, the whole movement was called the Hussite movement. Um, so it's, it's a misnomer to think that when they say Protestant, that just because you're not a Catholic and you're a Christian, that you protested against the Catholic Church. Because realistically, there were Christian groups everywhere that did not subscribe to or fall under the heretical rule of the Pope. Okay? So, and I don't bring this up to be an anti Catholic uh, talk about the Reformation, but when we talk about reformation in the definition of the word itself, it's to reform the teaching back to what it's supposed to be. And what was happening was, is that there was no continuity. And part of the reason there was no continuity was that the dominant state slash church theocracy power in the world for many years was this Holy Roman Empire. And it had leveraged the power of the state inside of the power of the church. And uh, it had ruined what was supposed to be um, the faith in Christ for salvation and turned it into support of the church and paying alms for salvation. Uh, and it had really changed it. So these people were trying to get culture to go back to what Christ and his apostles taught. So one of the guys that has a really uh, big impact on all of us in the modern world is a guy named John Calvin. Now, I know there's a lot of people, if you're reformed, you may say, well, I'm not a Calvinist. I don't believe in five-point Calvinism. Well, okay, you may not. But 
suffer this, what you're learning or, or teaching today probably has had an impact by John Calvin at some point because uh, he was a, an amazing theologian who did a lot for reforming the religious culture uh, in the 1500s uh, and it carrying forth through to today. So he was born in France, early 1500s, 1509, he's a theologian, a statesman, um, and he's a successor basically to Martin Luther. Um in the Protestant, if you will, religion, and he made a huge impact on fundamental doctrines of Protestantism or Reformationalism. Um, And then he ended up dying in Geneva, Switzerland in 1564. Um, But he started out as a law student and uh, he joined the cause for the Reformation in the 1530s and he did publish some works and he really held true to the doctrines uh, that people will enter heaven based on his omnipotence and his grace alone by our faith alone. And uh, that was really a huge reformation for how people had been believing before because there was a lot of works involved in the faith at the time. And he was really pulling that out and saying, nope, has nothing to do with it. you do, has everything to do with who God is and what God does for you. <clears throat> so... He was known for a real intellectual, unemotional approach to this whole thing. Um, it was all about uh, taking exactly from the Bible what uh, what needed to be extrapolated and applied to your faith. And um, he, you know, it was really looked at as descent to the church. But uh, he, um, you know, under his rule in, in Geneva, 58 people were executed and 76 exiled for their religious beliefs. He allowed no art other than music. This guy was a strict religious uh, person. And um, he sent out pastors everywhere, uh, which started the movements like Presbyterianism in Scotland and the Puritan movement in England and the Reformed Church in the Netherlands. And then he ended up dying, like I said, in Geneva. Um, But he is credited as probably... Um, the most important figure as far as the Reformation is concerned, just because, you know, uh, uh, Martin Luther says to the church, you're doing this wrong, and it kind of ends there. Although his letters are important, Calvin really takes it to the next level. It's like, okay, it's time for a huge movement. We've got a battle to fight. So it really is kind of the spurring of systematic theology. It's like, how do I get the people who are now starting to read the Bible in their own language, because that's been squashed for years and years because the church has been holding it down, to be able to understand what they're reading and have an apology for their faith, have a reason for their faith, have a reason to know what they believe is correct and be able to find it in the Bible. The true separation that they had from the Catholics here was on baptism, the Eucharist, on penance and predestination. I don't want to get it confused with five-point Calvinism, which we see get refined really up in in the 1960s, but I want to look at that traditional um, Calvinism. I do want to bring up uh, Spurgeon for a second. Of course, he's a contemporary. He's a modern guy, right? So he, he, uh, but just something, some quotes that he brought up as we look at the Reformation itself is um, was the Reformation just something that came out in the 16th century against the Catholic Church? And he, uh, Spurgeon, who was a Baptist, uh, said this. He says, We believe that the Baptists are original Christians. We did not commence our existence at the Reformation 
We were reformers before Luther or Calvin were born. We never came from the Church of Rome, for we were never in it. We have an unbroken line up to the apostles themselves. We have always existed from the very days of Christ, and our principles sometimes veiled and forgotten, like a river which may travel underground for a little season, have always had honest and holy adherence. Uh, Important to understand that he is again making the case here that it is Christ that maintained the church from the time of the apostles to now, not a church. And that there's a long line of people that Christ has allowed to bear those crosses that have continued throughout history. And that although reformed, the church is, it's not necessarily Protestant in its upbringing. We are not protesting the Catholic church. We simply believe something different and are continuing to reform it to get it to the point where it is as pure as possible through our studying of the word of God our understanding of the original language, and our understanding of the culture uh, that Christ would have for us, not only the culture in the Old Testament, the culture in the New. Spurgeon went on to say, We know among men in all ages by various names, such as Dynastus, Novatians, Paulicians, um, Petrobrusians, Cathari, Arnaldus, Hussites, Waldeneses, Lollards and Anabaptists have always contended for the purity of the church and her distinctness and separation from human government. Our fathers were men injured to hardships and unused to ease. They present to us their children an unbroken line which comes legitimately from the apostles, not through the filth of Rome. Uh, Pretty harsh statement but easy to understand that he is continuing to make that case. Uh, It's actually Rome that screws up the gospel. It is not these churches. It's not, you know, mankind who's toiling to make it better uh, that's screwing it up. It's Rome, or, you know, as first century Christians would call it, Babylon. Um, 20 years after that quote, uh, Spurgeon said this, long before your Protestants were known of, these horrible Anabaptists, as they were unjustly called, were protesting for the, quote, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, unquote. No sooner did the visible church begin to depart from the gospel, and these men arose to keep fast by the good old way. At times, ill-written history would have us think that they died out, so well had the wolf done his work on the sheep. Yet here we are, blessed and multiplied. Really important words from uh, you know a phenomenal theologian who's basically laying out the case. Like we have a long line uh, of men and women and families who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, who through the power of the Holy Spirit have continued to uh, you know bring the gospel through time, and that as Reformationalists, all we are doing is trying to reform the church as it is now back to what it is supposed to be when Christ established it in the first century. Now, of course, we are sinful humans, sinful people, fallen mankind, and it will, it'll be a constant toil, but it is a reality uh, that people have toiled for that case um, for two millennia. Um, 
Going back to the Reformation specifically, when you talk about Reformation Day, a lot of people high-five each other and say, Happy Reformation Day. My question I always ask for is, have you read the 95 Thesis and do you agree with them? And, you know, some people will kind of be like, yeah, I've looked them over and they're good. Well, are they really? Because Martin Luther, uh, as a Roman Catholic, really didn't, he loved the Catholic Church and didn't want to fall away. He really was less of a Reformationalist and more of a true Protestant why he was protesting against the indulgences specifically, but he still believed in some other things. You know, the seventh thing out of the 95 is God remits guilt to no one unless at the same time he humbles himself in all things and makes him submissive to the vicar, the priest. So the vicar being the Pope or, you know, the embodiment of Christ. So he believes the Pope is the vicar. You know, he makes comments, uh, you know, in the ninth uh, line where he refers to the Pope in his decrees and um, the canon in, in, in purgatory in the 10th. And then in the 16th, he refers to purgatory as well as the 17th and the 18th and the 19th. Uh, he agreed with this idea of purgatory. He just didn't agree with the idea that we had to pay for our way out of purgatory with money, especially if we were poor, nor could we pay for our way out of purgatory or pay the way out of purgatory for someone else or loved ones. He still believed in it. So, you know, there's a case to be made that purgatory is not a thing. I've I've gone, I've studied, I've looked for it, the support in two Maccabees about, you know, paying alms for the dead, although Maccabees is not canon. Um, I think, you know, it didn't become canon until the Council of Trent, and it, that was the 1500s in, in the Catholic Reformation, because now they're trying to make the case for purgatory, uh, but, you know, uh, 1500 years later, they're saying that, um, you know, Maccabees is canon, it is just, it is not. So, one, it's not a book that is, uh, matches the rest of the Bible, it's good for looking at the Maccabean Wars and looking, looking at Jewish history, but 2 Maccabees 12, 41 to 46. There's also some New Testament um, support the Catholic Church will give you, 2 Timothy 1.18, Matthew 12.32. They have nothing to do with purgatory at all. Um, don't want to talk about purgatory today, but I try to explain purgatory as a thing. Here's the thing with purgatory. <clears throat> purgatory, if you believe in it, cheapens the work of Christ on the cross, period. Christ said it's finished. He is the propitiation of sins. Uh, excuse me, the propitiation of sins. He atoned for your sins. That's it. If he wasn't good enough, then you shouldn't believe in him. If he was good enough and you believe in him, then when you die in him, just like the thief next to him on the cross, he says, today I'll see you in paradise. Then when you pass into the next, you will see him in paradise. So why is this important? Why is it important to go over these things and understand that as believers, it is important that we kind of know the history of who we are? Well, the original church was unified under Christ, not a man. And when Christ says, I'll build my church on this rock, he's putting it himself. I'm going to build it on me, the Petros. I'm going to build it on me as the cornerstone, not on Peter. We need to understand that a singular church is not the cornerstone of the faith. Christ is. Um, 
when you start to have a church that that's that is that big, it has the same problems as a theocracy, as a government. So when it comes up with rules and regulations and it has a vicar that is somehow, you know, there's other religions that have a prophet. The Mormons have a prophet. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a some sort of prophet that, you know, writes in a magazine every quarter or something like that. It's like all these things. You got some person in charge that delivers some sort of edict or some sort of bull or some sort of prophecy that comes from God. Well, which one is right? And how does it apply? And does it agree with the biblical text? And there's all these problems that come up with it. So here lies the problem you put a man, one single man in charge of everything. Now, that doesn't mean that we do not stand to have elders in a church or people overseers in a church. It's biblical to have uh, men who are overseeing the church and making sure that the church is running well and that it's got uh, you know guys with experience and time in the faith who can help guide us bishop like folks you know much like you look at Paul writing uh, in the New Testament to churches getting them going giving them reproof giving them instruction helping them to grow to live to reject people or accept people all important. And then it pushes us to keep our theology sharp. That's one of the things that is very important about this, is that it pushes us to continue to study and continue to learn so we don't fall in the trap of letting someone deceive us. As we reform ourselves, as we continue to get back to what is the basics of what Christ would have for my life, it means we need to read, it means we need to study, we need to do exegetical studies, we need to go through each book of the Bible and see how it applies to Christ, where it comes from Christ, and then how it applies to my life, if it does, if those texts even do apply. Remember, not everything in the Bible applies to your life. Some of it's history, some of it's allegory, some of it's poetry. doesn't necessarily mean it has something specific for you. Um, I'm reminded this morning, I've been reading a lot in the Psalms. I brought this up in the last couple of podcasts, Psalm 120. Psalm 120, the psalmist says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from dying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? It wore your sharp arrows with glowing coals of the bottom broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace? For I am peace, but when I speak, they are for war. When I read this, I think about voting in the election today. Voting in the election today, much like being a reformer, means when you stand for what is right, what is good, what is true, what is Christian, what would God have for me, what would Jesus have for me, my convictions as a believer, it means that people are not going to like you. There is peace in the covenant with God, that God has things for us that are good, a certain way to act, a certain way to live, a certain way to love one another and to be loved. We break outside of those things and we continue to remind ourselves, each other, our families, and our communities that we should be first loving Christ and then as a result of that responding in a certain way, people are for war. They're not going to like you. It's important that we understand that this is going to happen and it's not going to stop. Just like the psalmist says, I'm for peace, like I want it to be peaceful. 
They just don't. They just don't. So on this voting day and in this month where we celebrate 500 years that Martin Luther responded to the Pope, my encouragement to you is just stay on the grind. Stay prayerful. Stay honest with people. Don't cower. Don't settle. Love your wife. Love your husband. Love your children. Bring them up in the word of God. Remind them that there is holiness in them and that they should strive for righteousness and holiness because of him. Love them well. Love your neighbors well by being honest with them about the peace and the hope that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Only. That just because you have peace and you are silent does not mean that you are fulfilling the Great Commission. You are not reaching people for the case for Christ if your peacefulness means not mentioning his name. So go out today and share the gospel with somebody. God bless you. Stay on the grind. Good afternoon. Jeff Stevens here. Again, listening to some Set for the Fall. This one's a few years old. Still good. Hope everyone's doing well in the midst of the voting shenanigans and the second round of pandemic stuff going on. And I figured it's the least I can do to come to you today and talk about the one thing that's never talked about on the news, but is the most important thing in the world, in the universe, and in your life, and that's Jesus Christ. So, very important that we, uh, as believers, keep Jesus first. I know it's easy to get caught talking about other things, and not that it's not important to, but oftentimes as believers, we are drugged into society and to culture, and uh, we got to keep what's first first. I wanted to talk to you today a little bit about learning, learning from the Word of God, learning about the Word of God, uh, and why it is so important. And if this is one thing that I've found uh, to be something that is Uh, At the forefront of what I've talked about with guys in my circle who are believers, um, I've found that this one is probably the number one, and that is reading and learning the Word of God. Um, In in church uh, right now, uh, the pastor and I have decided, we do our Wednesday night evening uh, Bible study, which is open forum and, and on video, live. Uh, and it doesn't always stick straight to a topic. It, you know, it's meant to be open for them. So it's got some, uh, it's got some left and right turns. However, um, you know, we've gone over some of the, you know, basic topics of systematic theology and, uh, some other just kind of random topics. Uh, but we try to make it a good, uh, study, a good exegetical introspective study. Um, and, what we've, we have decided to go over for the next number of weeks is the doctrines of grace. Um, you know, if you're not a Calvinist, that's okay. These things create the foundation for, for our soteriology. Um, what becomes important about these is why do I know and how do I know that I'm saved and can I, can I keep it? Can I lose it? 
What do I have to do for it? So these are all really important things to understand. Um, and it, it's just not surprising to me that in regular conversation in church with churchgoers who've been going to church for years and years, is you can do just a little bit of studying and then engage somebody on it and realize they've never learned any of this stuff. So how do you know? Um, learning the Word of God. So I've talked about this in previous podcasts. I've talked about it from the pulpit. I've talked about it with friends, with family. Look, the example set forth in the Bible is that we are the bride of Christ. As the church, we are the bride. So as a couple, if you take it and apply it to what a marriage looks like uh, here for us uh, between a man and a woman, it is imperative that you know your significant other, that you know who they are and what they like and what their favorite color is and what they like to eat, what movies they like to watch. All of these things are an important part of them knowing that you love them because you know them and you've desire to know them and you've taken the time to know them. And, uh, you know, all these things go into a relationship where two people love one another and it's about taking the time to love one another. So, um, I say that <clears throat> because we're going to talk about some things and I'm going to not go through <clears throat> big sections of the Bible, but we'll take some verses that support why learning and why knowledge from the Bible, not just wisdom, imparted wisdom from the Holy Spirit, but knowledge of and from the Bible is important. When it comes to this intimacy that we learn, you know, I just pulled up these, um, this thing from Psychology Today, which is definitely not a, uh, a Christian site or a site for believers. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's definitely secular. But they get this article, and this article came out like four years ago. It's written by a PhD, a psychologist, and it's kind of it's mumbo jumbo, but it goes into the 21 questions to tell how well you really know your partner. And uh, I just, it was kind of an interesting read because as I look at this thing, uh, every single one of these things I could take somehow and apply it to our relationship with God. Now, some might be a stretch. I know some are weird, but I'll take some of these things and say, uh, take the sixth one on the list. What disappointments or rejection from your partner's past still stings? If you can't apply that to the Word of God, you've never read the Word of God. Number seven is, which of your partner's achievements are they most proud of? Um, some of these other ones that uh, are just important. You know, what is your partner's favorite flavor of ice cream? Probably not, not something you can relate to the word of God. But when you think of that, God has put such an amazing array of food on the planet for us to eat. Um, you know, these are, are things that he did for us. I mean, you can relate a lot of these just to creation in itself. Anyway, we go through all of these things some of these are just about history as well, which is it lends to, do you talk to your spouse about their family? You know, how did, how did your partner spend their summers as a child? You know, something about their development, they grown up, their mom, their dad, all this kind of stuff. So it lends to us knowing our spouse in a way that shows that we have 
talk to them, learn from them, taking the time. And these are things you're supposedly willing to pull right off the top of your head. So what it does is it breaks it down into these sections and it's got um, four sections that score you as out of the 21 as 16 or more points as being knowing your partner very well, as 10 to 15 points and knowing them pretty well, five to nine points, you've only been together a short time, and then zero to four points is this thing says it's good news, but there's lots of room for improvement. If we were to equate this to our Lord, I would say if you did a test of, of 21 and you knew none of them to four of them, that's not good news. That's bad news. Uh, there's definitely room for improvement, but we need to do it now. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that it talks about as the, you know, your partner very well, uh, if you haven't been with your partner for very long and you know all these, you get a pretty intense relationship style. Well, if you were anything like me, when you got saved, when you realized in that moment that the Holy Spirit convicted you and it was time for you to get off your keister and start becoming familiar with this God who had the power to reach into your heart, cut you to the quick, change your life in an instant and say, I want you. I have better for you. I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to make you better. I'm going to pull the junk out of your life because I love you. I died for you. This is not a stretch for me. We should be digging in and learning and becoming more intimate with our God. We should be passionate about it. We should be passionate about it. I would say that if you're not passionate about learning about your God, you need to question your salvation. I'll say it again. If you're not passionate about learning about your God from the word of God, you need to question your salvation. It is imperative that we are digging in on this. And there's, there's a few reasons why I'm going to get into in a few minutes. But if I was to make a list of 21 things out of the word of God, and I don't just mean simple stuff like who is God's son, Jesus. What do we call the spirit in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit? Now, I, don't want, I don't mean simple questions. If I was to dig in on some questions that were a little bit more intimate about God, Ask yourself this question right now. Could you answer those questions? Now, the Bible's big, and there's a lot of information in it, and some of that information is information that's not going to have a humongous impact on your salvation, a humongous impact on uh, your intimacy with God. I mean, there are you know lists of names of people that don't necessarily change your faith, um, there are especially Old Testament events and where and when they happen that may not have, uh, um, you know, very specific purpose for your life. Although knowing those things can make you a better Bible scholar and a person who is better to answer questions from non-believers and young believers alike, they are, it is all good information, but I would say not an imperative. Um, so very important nonetheless if I made a, a list of 21 questions that was all relevant to, like I brought up earlier, let's just use the word soteriology, your salvation, the study of your salvation, the doctrine of salvation, 21 questions that said, how are you saved? Why are you saved? Who are you saved to? Who are you saved for? What did you do to get saved? If I, if I made 21, would you be able to answer them all? And even as a believer who's been a believer for a number of years, would you do really well 
Or would you just be able to shrug your shoulders and say, I just know, I just know I'm saved, which I don't think that's the right answer. And why is it not the right answer? Well, this is a verse that's used regularly to support our um, being able to have an answer for our faith, right? So it's 1 Peter 3.15, and I'll read it from the ESV. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So the gentleness and respect I'm going to set aside from now, that means we love people. The hope that is in you. What is the hope that is in you? That is the gospel. So the gospel message, Christ came for us. He is God incarnate. He is, he is fully man. He is fully God. He lived a holy life. He was sinless. Uh, you know, at around 30 years old, he uh, began a ministry. About three years into that ministry, he was um, crucified by the um, Roman soldiers uh, under the guise of the Jewish king. They put him to death because he blasphemed them. They hung him from a cross. There he took upon him the sin of the world. He became the propitiation for sin. He atoned for the sins of uh, all who believe in him. And then he went to the grave after he died. Three days later, he rose from that grave. He conquered sin and death. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father now. Because of that act, we have access to the Father. He is our righteousness. He is our atonement for the sin that we carry because of our sinful nature, because of original sin. And that is how we live in eternity in paradise forever after our uh, physical death here on earth. So that is the hope. But how do I know that? Here's the thing that Peter is telling us here is always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for that reason. So I would say young believers, old believers, non-believers, people of other religions who are just inquiring, who have questions about Christianity, about our faith, about why do you act the way you act? Why do you go to church when you do? Why do you study what you study? Um, these are all very important things. The most important part of this entire verse is this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense. Peter is saying here, be prepared always to make this defense, and that honors Christ. In your heart, you are honoring Christ. This is a command. This is not, hey, hey, it would be pretty good if you knew the Bible a little bit better, because if you knew it a little bit better, man, you'd really be a powerhouse for the Holy Spirit. No, no, that's not the way it works. The Holy Spirit's the one who works in people's lives and gets them saved. What Peter's saying here is, when you make a defense for your faith, when you know the word of God, when you know why that word of God has worked in your heart, why the Holy Spirit has done that act, that work in your heart and saved you, you are able to answer that because you have knowledge, because you know what you know about your life, because you've read the word of God, you understand your salvation, you understand your faith, and you're able to give clear, concise, deliberate answers as to why you know that you are saved. People will ask questions like, but how do you know you're saved? Can I lose my salvation? But what if I'm sinning? But what if I keep doing this? But I've got all this junk in my past. Are you able to reference the word of God and say, 
No, it's all right, man. We're all sinners. Why do you know this? So this, these are imperatives, and what is imperative about this whole thing is the first part of this verse, in your hearts, honor Christ. That's how we honor Christ. Don't we want to do that in our relationship, in our intimate relationship with someone, one who we would consider uh, in a marriage-type bond with? We honor them regularly, always, but also because we, he loved us first, therefore we love him, and because we love him, we want to honor him, and we honor him through preparing ourselves to make that defense to anyone who asks the reason for that hope that's in us. These, this is, these are imperatives. So let's start talking about learning. So what does the Bible say anything about learning the Word of God? Does it say anything about studying the Word of God? Does it say anything about that intimacy that I keep talking about that brings you closer to God, that helps to you to prepare that message of hope that you're able to share with people? I would say yes. I would say do a study in Proverbs. I did a study in Proverbs with my wife and kids a couple of years ago, and it seems like this theme keeps coming around and around and around again. You know, here we've got Solomon, who's, you know, brilliant, had all these um, people who taught him, and he was learning all this amazing stuff, and he tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Well, in Proverbs, there's all this stuff that keeps saying, keep learning, and It'll say things like this in Proverbs 1.5, let the wise hear and increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance. So we are called to learn, to increase our learning about our Father and about Jesus. Um, We should get guidance. So go to the people in your church who are elders and teachers and preachers and talk to them. If you're a man, go to your pastor or your elders. They should be prepared to give you an answer. If they're not, then maybe you need to seek out another place where the people there are prepared to do that. You know, if you're um, you know, a lady in the church, you need to be prepared to deliver to the young ladies and the children these, this, this guidance. If you're not then you need to get in the word of God. That's what you're there for, to give that guidance. Um, Proverbs gives this, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge uh, four times specifically. Once it says wisdom, but the, it, Proverbs 1.7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what is he saying to us here? An understanding of our right place in our depravity to God that God is holy, he's outside of everything, that God is the God of wonders, that he created the entire universe, and we fear him because he is so majestic and he is the king, and that without him and without his saving grace, we are led to destruction. Knowing that is the beginning of knowledge. It's the starting point of, I want to learn more to get closer to my creator. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So I'll tell you this, if you're in a church where people are not studying, learning, praying, teaching, learning more, digging into the word of God, doing deep Bible studies, not just about what makes you feel good and, you know, I'm a warrior for Christ or, um, you know, I'm going to learn all the ladies of the Bible and how cool they were. But like, why do you believe what you believe and create a defense for it? If you are not doing that, then you, uh, um, you know, are living in a foolish type of environment. 
you should be um, looking for that instruction. See, it says here that fools despise wisdom and instruction. We should be seeking it out. And if those that are in positions of authority and teaching are not learning more so that they're able to deliver it more, they are fools as well. And uh, I would um, encourage you to seek out somebody else. Sometimes that's not always the big church with the best band. Sometimes it's just um, you know, somebody in your circle, your neighborhood, or another church that's able to do that for you. Um, get uncomfortable. Uh, the, the Word of God doesn't say, I'm going to make you comfortable, remember. So uh, challenge yourself. Um, Proverbs 18.15, again, Proverbs is just full of this stuff. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge. So this is an intelligent heart. So this is like, I, my heart should desire knowledge. You know, Isaiah is clear that our heart seeks after evil. It's this strange dichotomy, but it's my heart as in my desire should want to learn more. And it says the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So I should be, you know, listening more, uh, pull up podcasts, listen to people who do exegetical studies, uh, and uh, dig in and learn about your savior more. This is a verse that I've talked about quite a bit lately, and I'm going to caveat it a little bit. But I did a, a, a sermon on this earlier this year, and it's it's on an earlier podcast about God breathed, uh, or it's called Just Breathe. But in 2 Timothy 3.16, it, this is really important, and I'll go over it again, but all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Breathed out, theonoustos. Not just but blown, but God breathed, which means that it is uh, all one. The word's not a conjugation. It's a new word, theonoustos. It's like the breath of God. So that scripture is that when you read it, it is God's breath coming over you, filling you with truth. So it's important that we read it and we learn it and we let it permeate us uh, in a way that only the word of God can do and nothing else. It's profitable for teaching. So this helps us create our defense for our hope, right? So it's going to teach us it reproof and correction. So it's going to allow us to know what is right and what is wrong. Because when the people in your circle at your church or in your life are doing things that are incorrect, they are sinful and they're leading them down a path, we should be able to look at that person, that situation, that sinfulness and say, that's not what God would have for you. Here is why, here's why it says what it says. And now we know that liberal churches are not doing this because they're foolish and they don't read from the word of God or they set it aside. It says all, all. In Greek, the word means all. In Hebrew, it means all. English, it means all. Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. That means when God says something is not good for us, then it's not good for us, period. So the word of God teaches us What's good for reproof or correction? We need to take that in. We need to learn it. We need to apply it to our lives. We need to not be afraid to look at people, especially in our immediate circle. And I don't mean go down the street and yell at people with picketing signs and tell them they're sinful, but the people in our circle and say, this is not good for your life. It's not good for your heart. It's not good for your relationship with God. Here's why. Let's pray about it. Let's dig into the word of God and let God speak this over our lives. That scripture is also good for training in righteousness. So how do I become more righteous? How am I responsible at all for part of my sanctification process here on earth? I believe sanctification is two parts. 
God does a bunch of the sanctifying by making our hearts desire after things that are more righteous, but we can actually respond to that and become more sanctified by doing things like training ourselves, digging into the Word of God, like Tim, uh, Paul says to Timothy here, that if you, if you cut out the words in the middle, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is pros- profitable for training in righteousness. So I read the Word of God, I apply it to my life, and it helps to train me to become more righteous. And when I become more righteous, I have the ability now to do better reproof and correction over people who are stepping out. And I'm also more profitable as a teacher or a preacher or a pastor or a mother or a father or a brother or a sister or somebody who's walking with Christ who's able to deliver the Word of God. I'm a better evangelist. I'm a better friend. I'm a better co-worker, all because I know this Word of God. And this thing goes on. A lot of people like to stop in 2 Timothy 3.16, but you got to go on to verse 17 as we keep going because it says that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So what does that mean if you're not learning from the Word of God and you're just preaching it? Well, that means you're incompetent. That means God is telling you, you're not good enough to do this. What type of incompetent person is qualified to stand at a pulpit or is qualified to preach the Word of God? None. You wouldn't want to go to an incompetent person to teach you how to fix your car or an incompetent person to teach you, uh, uh, you know, how to do open heart surgery. You wouldn't want to go to somebody that's incompetent to do your open heart surgery or to fix your car. So why would you go to an incompetent person who's going to deliver the Word of God to you to an incompetent person who is going to teach you about the intimacy of your salvation? And why would you want to be incompetent about it if you truly want to share that hope when you know that it's about saving people's lives, that it is truly about eternal salvation? You don't want to be incompetent on these things. You want to be as well learned as you possibly can so that you are able to deliver a powerhouse of a message so that uh, as we do this, as we um, uh, allow the Holy Spirit to work in our culture, that we are in line with what God would have us say to him, that we are delivering words that are, are true and they come from truth. And then it goes on in verse 17 to say, equip for every good work. So those good works come out of a place of where we don't just uh, loosely say, ah, I do good works because I'm saved. Okay, but why? But why do you do good works because you're saved? And what do those good works look like? You know, I would say very easily, some of those good works are turned right around to the beginning of this and saying, learn the word of God. And part of that good work is working in the people in your church, in your circle, and where you work by knowing the Word of God well enough that you are able to deliver it to them in a way that shows you not only your competence, but touches their heart, helps them to learn the Word of God well. Very important stuff that we get into here. I would say this, as we learn these things, as you go into books of the Bible, if you get a study Bible, Start out whatever book you're going to be in with. Learn the history of the book a little bit. Who wrote it? When was it written? Why was it written? Who was it written to? It's really important to get context when we learn the Word of God because, as many of you probably have and I have as well, people will say things and do things that are not applicable or should be applied 
just out of their lack of knowledge. So reading the Bible in context is extremely important. And you can gather a lot of that context just by having a good study Bible um, and that being the starting point. And then having somebody in your life who is a discipler, somebody who you can go to with regular questions or even people you can go to um, with regular questions. And that person might be somebody who leads a small group or a person who leads a study group, but really important um, as you develop your faith to have somebody who is learned in the Word of God, who is delivering this information well. And I don't just mean willy-nilly. Just because you raised your hand in a church meeting and said, I'll teach a Bible study, doesn't mean you're qualified. So these people should really be qualified to do this. Um, and that needs to be well understood. Um, the reason I say that is, you know, it's clear here as Paul talks to Titus, you know, in Timothy and Titus, Paul is showing the structure of the church and how things should look, right? So he's telling them who should lead the church and how they should lead the church and what their qualifications are and all this kind of stuff. Again, this is all context. This is stuff we learn when we read and we study. In Titus 2.1, he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So um, when we're teaching, we need to be teaching and making sure that it's in line with the doctrine that we learned, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, our doctrines of grace, as I, you know, I've gone over uh, uh, just in the last few minutes, but really important that we um, we stick with this plan that we are going to continue to learn and grow in Christ as we develop our faith walk so that, as Peter says, we're able to uh, at any point in time honor Christ and that we're prepared to make a defense for that hope that lies within us. Um, there is so much going on in the church and even in politics today where we see this humongous, I hate this word, evangelical movement. You know, uh, evangelion, the word to, to preach. We're using this word to describe a bunch of people who wear uh, faith-based t-shirts but have probably never cracked the word of God. Uh, you know, they would love a Hillsong concert because it's a rock show, but they don't know who Jesus is. And they live in this hyper-grace world where they just think they're saved because they voted a certain way. Uh, I'll take you back to Proverbs. Very important that we dig in on this stuff. Proverbs ten seventeen: whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. <laughs> This is not, hey, I got it figured out, man. I got this so figured out. I just know Jesus is going to save me. Why? Just because he is. Look, heed instruction, learn, learn from the word of God. That's where your instruction starts. You're on a path to life. Conversely, those people who are like, eh, I don't need to dig in on that. I already know that. I already know what I know. He who rejects reproof leads others astray, right? And we don't want to be that person that leads people astray. So, you know, it's better to tie that millstone around your neck and chuck yourself in the, in, the, in the ocean. So we want to make sure that we are heeding instruction because that is the path to life. Now, here's something I think is cool, and I'm going to leave you um, with these two verses um, to help you grow. Uh, they help me grow, and I think it's a good word, and it's a, a positive note to end on. But in, in James, uh, James, very intimate with Jesus, of course, as a brother. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Um, I brought this up before. I'm waiting on that still small voice. I'm waiting to hear from God. Well, I will quote Pastor 
Mark Driscoll from Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona on this. If you want to hear a word from God, read the word of God. Really simple. If you lack wisdom, let him ask God. So open the book and read. That's how you ask God. God is going to deliver you the answers in the book. I'm not saying don't pray and ask for him to to impart wisdom on you, but the book is right there. It's got all the knowledge in it that you need, and it's got all the reproof, all the correction, all the knowledge, all the wisdom. Read it, and it's going to be given to you generously without reproach. It's going to be given to you. That is the starting point for all of your wisdom, James is saying here. So talk to God when you do it. Pray when you open the book. God, I'm doing this study this week. Just let it speak to my heart. Open something in my soul. Uh, Open something in my mind. Please pour it onto me. Help me memorize this verse. Whatever that may be. Read and read and read. Read the beginning of, let's say we use the book of James. Read it. Who was James? Where did he live? When did he live? When did he die? What is important about him? What is the context of what he was writing so that we understand what he's saying and when he was saying it? How does it apply? And then take that with you throughout the day. And you might find that what God does when you ask him for wisdom is he takes what you read that day because you should be studying something every day and he will apply it to your life that day. You'll have a word for somebody. You'll have an action for somebody. You will have a service for somebody It will spark some other sort of learning that will lead you to somebody else. It will help you with creating that defense, right? Very, very important. And this goes in line with it. uh, And in the book of John, and and we're going to read from John 14 and verse 26, um, Jesus's words here, and we'll finish with this, say, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we're talking about the gospel message here. And it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's just going to plant himself in you and you know every word. But remember, we've developed a canon, uh, you know, a couple thousand years ago. This word of God, it is the most sacred, most secure uh, collection of books in the history of human kind. It is divinely inspired. It is inerrant. Um, and it is the word of God. It is alive. It is theonustos. It is God breathed. And all things he will bring to your remembrance through that book, through the word of God. He is going to develop a heart for you that creates an intimacy with him, that creates a desire to serve others because as we go back to, to Timothy, it's going to equip us for those good works because of that love that he had for us. Swelling up that love inside of us creates this love for others so we can do that good work. Part of that good work is that teaching one another. And we do it out of love for one another because we want other people to be prepared to defend uh their faith and their hope for anyone that should ask and to do it with gentleness and respect. So in closing, I would say there's a lot going on. We got uh, Thanksgiving coming up. People are starting to push against whether or not you're going to have people in your home. Me, I would encourage you to have people there because we love one another and Christ says to gather. God says to gather. We are beings made for fellowship 
So come together, come together in thankfulness, uh, not just thankfulness of our country and, uh, you know, our military and our defenders that keep us safe so we can break bread on that day, but thankful that God has blessed us and placed us in a part of the world and the community where we're able to worship him freely still today. And we will exercise that freedom by gathering together in prayer and in worship and in breaking bread. And through that breaking of the bread, we remember the broken body and the spilt blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross for the sins of all of us. Become intimate today with your Lord and Savior. Figure out 21 questions that you've got today for God and get more familiar with him. Dig in on the word of God, get to know him better, become intimately familiar with him and create that defense for the hope that lies within you. If you're like me, you have got a hope that extends way beyond the now. I have this tremendous love for my wife and my children that I want them to live in paradise forever with our Lord and Savior, learning and growing in an amazing world that my small pea brain cannot even fathom. And because of that hope, I dig in on this word of God and I get to know him so that I might share it with them and with the people in my community because it is the most important thing in the world. So I'll leave you with that today. Friends, love you. Uh, Stay on the grind. Stevens here. Start off with a little king and country, a little drummer boy. Great song. Great song all year, not just the holiday season, but uh, definitely a great band. Awesome to watch live if you have not. Um, coming to you this morning with, uh, you know, just uh, this overwhelming sense of a lot going on in the world and where we should be as believers and how we should be responding to uh, things uh, politically and as far as our health and uh, what we should be doing as Christians. And uh, I I don't typically put titles on um, these podcasts, uh, you know, headers, yes, but if I was to put a title on this, it would be Wake Up American Christian, It's Christmas. You know, as as believers, uh, it seems like this year in many ways we've set aside the idea that every year we take time out to celebrate the coming of Emmanuel, of God with us. We definitely set aside, uh, you know, a twelfth of our year to decorating and eating together and loving one another and worshiping together. And we have um, changed that this year. And realizing throughout history, it's probably, it's changed a lot. I know for me uh, personally it has, and for some of you listening, it may have as well, where maybe you spent your Christmas somewhere else other than at home with family, maybe uh, in a combat zone somewhere, um, someplace not quite as nice, 
someplace where they don't celebrate uh, the birth of our Lord and Savior. But in this particular case this year, here I sit uh, in the United States, and the, there's very little about Christmas anywhere. Everything is about COVID, uh, the orders put out by our governors, um, the election, the election being overturned, the lawsuits, the bickering back and forth between politicians. And uh, in the midst of all of that, you know, where do we stand? How do we respond as Christians? First, I would say this. Um, these unlawful orders to mask up and to stay home and to stay away from one another. Uh, if you're a believer, I went over this uh, a couple podcasts ago, I talked about it on our Wednesday, Wednesday night church service. If you watch any of those videos, um, this is it. The Bible, God, Jesus Christ is clear. The apostles were clear um, when they set up the first century church. We are not to neglect meeting together. Um, <laughs> perspective is a funny thing. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second, but the Bible is crystal clear that we are supposed to continue to meet one another, to break bread, to do communion, to uh, celebrate the church, to worship our God. We are supposed to do it in fellowship, period. There's no other way around it. Now, realizing there are times in history where people haven't had the ability to do that, there is absolutely no way that you're going to get a reasonable person to believe that a virus that has a 99.7% survival rate and is really only detrimental to people that have some sort of comorbidity or predisposition to having a huge problem with this that the rest of us cannot meet together. The one thing I'm not saying is don't be safe if you do have pre-existing medical conditions. What I am saying is <laughs> the church needs to meet together. We are the hands and feet of our Lord. We meet together, we worship, we go into the community, we serve. Are we going to stop serving this year? Are we not going to give out food, blankets? Are we not going to love? Are we not going to remind our society that um, the whole reason we set this period aside is because of Jesus? You know, where's the keep Christ in Christmas uh, type of spirit that we're supposed to keep up, the one that uh, the secularists just hate and continue to remind us that it's a secular holiday and, and we're worshiping trees. Where's that idea that we uh, step out and say, no, we worship uh, the God of all creation and we continue to do so in a way uh, that pierces the hearts of our neighbors. It is our responsibility to make sure that these unlawful orders are, st are stood against, not in a, in a rebel-rousing way, but in a way where we stand in truth and solidarity. Um, you know, non-believers like to do things like utilize the Bible out of context in a way that they think they can um, uh, trip us up and get us to, uh, you know, look back at the Word of God. It, one is, you know, doing these things is a way to uh, love your neighbor. Um, I would like to remind for the person who does not read the Bible regularly that in the book of Mark in chapter 12 where uh, Jesus uh, reminds them to love their neighbors that just before that Christ is reminding them that they don't know the scriptures. Uh, 
that they don't know what they're talking about. And he gives them a lesson and he rebukes them. So I would say that to somebody who said, hey, put on a mask to love your neighbor. Stay at home to love your neighbor. What do you mean? Uh, are you using the Bible as a way to try to trip me up? Because I think you're taking it out of context. The idea of loving your neighbor is the idea of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. The idea of loving your neighbor is bringing blankets, it's bringing food, it's serving the weak, the needy, the widow. That is what we are called to do. We are not called to sit at home because there is a virus that's only killing 0.3% of the population and, and all of those are people who are already sick. That is, that is just ridiculous. So I would say absolutely stand against that. I would go on with this. If you need an example for what the church looks like when the government and the authorities don't like it and they stand against it, I would encourage you to open a Bible and go to the book of Acts and read chapters 4 and 5. Of course, we have Christ coming back and spending time with his disciples, the apostles and his disciples, first three chapters. Christ is going to do works with them. We're going to see Christ ascend to heaven. Acts 4 and 5, we're going to see the church begin to take shape. <laughs> you know how it takes shape first? The apostles standing out on Solomon's portico preaching to the point where it is so offensive to the leadership that they throw them in jail. They lay hands on them. That means be physical with. So there was resistance. They didn't just say, okay, we'll go home like the government said, and we'll sit here and do what we're told and hope that our podcast or our, our video message from our church makes it out to enough people that it, it makes them feel at home, that maybe if everybody logs into the same video at the same time, that it somehow meets the requirement of breaking bread together in solidarity for the church. No, they met together, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and they healed people and they, they, they served people to the point where the authorities arrested them on a few occasions. It even got to the point where if you continue right into Acts 5, as you start getting towards the end, towards the beginning, you'll see the, the sermon, but at the end, you're going to see Stephen be stoned to death. Why does Stephen get stoned to death? Because he boldly stands against the authorities and says, you guys just keep ignoring the God of all creation. You've ignored him since the beginning of time. He's been showing himself to you. He showed himself through scripture. He showed himself through his uh, uh, keeping of his promises to you. And you continue to put him down. And then the authorities just get tired of him. That's the example of the rebel rouser that the Christian is. The Christian continues to preach and walk in solidarity with one another in the church and with Christ this we know, that the church is not going to be liked. The church, there, tougher times are going to continue to come. Hardships are going to continue to come. We need to continue to stand against them. Uh, there are just so many examples uh, um, where we see in James 1, you know, where James tells, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There's going to be tests for us. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 5 that uh, we rejoice in our sufferings. These sufferings that uh, uh, he pushes through with endurance are often these. They are things where we are shamed. 
where we are put down by our government, where we are tried to be held back. Uh, you know, <laughs> oddly enough, people have got this tattoo on them and they've got it written on their walls and written on the back window of their car. They've got t-shirts with it. They've got hats with it. In Philippians 4.13, I can do all things who Christ who strengthens me. Well, I'll tell you right now, if on Sunday morning you're pulling up a video of church, you're not doing all things. You're doing nothing. So you need to do some introspection into your heart and read the Word of God and make a decision of whether or not you're going to be a good disciple and follow His Word and meet with one another. Um... You look in the Old Testament, Joshua, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. God is with you wherever you go. Another thing that you'll see, you know, as a, as a punchline, we can turn around and use it as a, come on, Christian, it's Christmas. We're supposed to be celebrating the birth of our Savior. And instead, we sit on our hands. It's unacceptable. Endurance is a very important part of the Word of God, and we see this theme run through in places like Timothy. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Do we deny him if we just sit at home and do nothing? And we are promised difficult times. Remember, uh, constantly throughout the Word of God, we are promised difficult times. Um, you know, Christ reminds us even in John 16 in the world that we'll have tribulation. And then he says to us, take heart, I've overcome the world. So while we're here, it's going to be bad. But at the end of the game, we've got him. That he is our prize. He is the reason we continue to push forward. He is the reason that we continue to serve, continue to love, continue to make our way out in our community. We don't listen to government authorities who are for Americans, one, unlawful, unconstitutional, but two, unbiblical. There is no place in the Bible you can tell me a leader giving unbiblical edicts can tell us that there is a certain way we are supposed to act, react, or live our lives. We are supposed to live as Christians, period. Um, Peter is clear in a couple of cases. In 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 1 and 6 and 7, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, when he talks about the testing of your faith, this becomes, these times become the testing of our faith, do they not? Because if you think it's just that addiction or that sex problem or that uh, depression that you deal with, that really is just a matter of you spending more time in the Word of God and you spending more time in prayer, just a little bit of discipline in your life. If you really think that's a trial... How about the government telling you to stay home and do nothing and the church not meet together? That is a trial. Are you willing to do something that you were told not to do as a means of being obedient to the word of God, obedient to the God of all creation, who's telling you to go find your neighbor? 
You know, we sit in church, and if you've heard it once, you've heard it a thousand times. The Great Commission. Go disciple people. You know, and we, this big, you know, we feel all tingly when the sermon gets done. Yeah, we're going to go out and we're going to disciple. We're going to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. We're going to do all these uh, uh, crazy things. And the government says, put on a mask, stay at your house. Don't talk to anybody. Don't get too close to anybody. You're going to all infect one another. All of you Christians, you're patient zero. You're killing everybody. We go, okay, we're going to stay at home. If just for a time. If just for a time somebody in your community doesn't receive Christ, what then? What then, Christian, that you have not reached someone for the gospel? What then that somebody does not hear uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ? What then if they never know the good news? What then if they go to their grave never knowing that there was something more? What then that you were not the hands and feet of Christ? What then? I say the government must have any standing or authority over the word of God. It is up to us to continue to be lawful within the confines of our text that we are given as a revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to move on to this because I think it's important to say, because we're talking about the government a little bit, and that is the government is not your savior. There is nothing that our government or our president or our authorities can do to save our soul. Now, we can make political decisions that are based on our faith because even non-believing officials can make decisions that are in our best interest and allow us to perpetuate the gospel. But that doesn't mean that we're going to be saved by them. And although this might make me unpopular in circles, the government's not your savior, savior, nor is Donald Trump. He is not your savior. And that although he may say things that you like, he may do things that you like, I think definitely he has positioned himself as a person who uh, is willing to allow the Christian church to meet and worship, and he encourages churches to be together. That is very good, but he as the man cannot save you. It's only Jesus Christ. So remember, as we talk about God's sovereignty, that he is sovereign over even the leaders we don't like. Whether you didn't like President Obama or you don't like the incoming President Joe Biden because you think that they are satanic, you think that they are socialist or communist in the way that they do things, Remember that God is sovereign over all of them. So when you see a picture of Jesus with his hands on the shoulders of one president, remember that Jesus stands over all of them. It is very important to remember that our God is sovereign over all things, all leaders, and all time, and that he will not, as a president, save your soul. It is it is up to Jesus Christ to save your soul, and your submission and your obedience to him is the relationship that you should have only for that. And we continue to toil in good times and bad, no matter the president. We get comfortable under presidents that make it easy for us to worship and easy for us to live our lives as Christians. But I'll say this as well, we get soft. 
We get soft because we're not tested. We get soft and prosperity churches and fake churches pop everywhere and people print Jesus t-shirts by the millions and it does nothing for the gospel. The gospel is really tested and true and it is spread the way it is supposed to be spread when times are tough. Remember, our first century church fathers were hunted and killed hunted and killed under leaders who hated them. They were not spreading the gospel at massive church gatherings of eighteen or 20,000 people where people lifted their hands and told that if they planted a seed, they would make millions of dollars. No. They met in homes. They met in small churches. They spread the word of God through loving one another and they were hunted and killed by leaders who hated them. That is it. Our government will not save us. A certain president will not save us. I want to remind you that the current president, Donald Trump, although many things he does allow us to have freedoms as Christians to worship, that he said publicly that he is unrepentant and that the person that he put as the um, religious leader of the country, the person who prays with the president, Paula White, is a prosperity preacher. She's a false preacher. That the Bible's clear that women are not pastors, preachers, and teachers. And she, she is just a rich charlatan. And this is who we have standing at the top. It is not up to them. It is up to us as the believer in the church to be the hands and feet of Christ. It is up to us to stop mixing the gospel with government. We live out the gospel no matter the government. And our God is sovereign over the last president, the current president. He'll be sovereign over the next one no matter who it is. No matter what. And you may think that you've got some sort of prophecy. It doesn't matter who it is. For us, the Christian, what matters is that we act in response to that as believers who are going to spread the gospel to our neighbors and serve our community, period. Don't mince my words. I am a patriot, and I believe that we fight for our freedoms. I spent the majority of my life uh, putting myself in a position where I, I fought for our freedoms I went overseas numerous times for our freedoms. It's up to us to fight for our freedoms here as Americans, as patriots, and we will stand and we will do that. And those are part of the the mix of theonomy, right? They are not theocracy where the church and the government are one, but as leaders in our community, we conduct ourselves and we expect our leaders as Christians to conduct themselves in a way where we drive the government a certain way. But we don't always get what we want. So as patriots, we will stand up and we will rise up. We will do what's best for our communities and our families. But that is separate as the response that we give as Christians must be in solidarity. And as the Acts 4 and 5, as the rebel rousers, we will continue to meet. We will continue to fight. We will not allow a government, no matter who it is, to tell us what we can do. We will continue to worship him. I say all that to say this. It's Christmas time. And 
it is important um, that we meet together and that we love together and that we serve together. This is a really, it's an easy time for us to meet people where their needs are. And it always has been. Remember, we've got Christers, right? Christmas and Easter visitors to the church. If your church is closed at Christmas this year and those people who are feeling the call uh, don't have a place to go, if there's not a warm door to walk in wherever you live, that they might hear the gospel, you're wrong. This is a time of year, remember this and Easter is when people will go to your church who don't typically go there and they're gonna hear a message they don't typically hear. And if you're closed, they won't ever hear it. This is a good time to make your church your your living room or whatever that might be, a place where somebody hears the word of God. Very, very important. And I would challenge you that you get with your church and your church leadership and you find a way to make that happen. No matter what the government says, that you stand like those first century Christians did on Solomon's portico and you preach the word of God and you do it in a way that people will hear you and people are healed. I don't mean healing like making their leg longer like these charlatans do. I mean healing like they hear the word of God and they say, that is Jesus Christ and he is my savior and I will love him because he first loved me. They give their life to him and he saves their soul. We can't do that if we're closed. It's important that we celebrate this Christmas. You know, the, the word of God is so full of prophecy and I'm gonna talk about this in an upcoming podcast, but this this prophecy, remember we have got like 351 prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Bible. We've got, I think, 108 prophecies about Christ being born. 108 prophecies of Christ being born. If you take just eight of those prophecies and you fulfill them in such a specific way as Christ fulfilled it as to being born when he was born, who he was born to, where he was born, and that he visited Egypt if you take all if you take those first eight and you fulfill them in a way that Christ did, the probability of that happening is one to ten in the seventeenth power. That is the probability of taking quarters and spreading them over the state of Texas two feet deep, taking one quarter and placing a mark on that quarter and chucking it somewhere into that pile two feet deep over the entire state of Texas. And telling a blind man to walk as far into Texas as he can and pick up one quarter. And when he does, he picks up the one that you marked. That is the probability of the promise of that prophecy. This is an amazing time where we are able to celebrate that God tells us the truth. That God fulfills the prophecy of the Old Testament and the New. That God fulfills the prophecy of what Christ spoke here in our future where he allows us to live with him in eternity. He loves us. This is a time where we respond. Isaiah tells us in his prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's very important 
that we continue to celebrate this holy day, this holiday, that we meet together, that we worship him, that we share these times with our friends and our neighbors, and that we don't settle for what the government says and what the government does, that we open our eyes to the truth of being held back by Satan, and that we take this time to say no, that as obedient Christians, as loving Christians, that his promise is fulfilled through us, and that we don't worry about uh, physical threat, that we have more, that we have more. We have the promise of a savior. We have the promise of times getting worse. We have the promise that things will just continue to get worse and worse. If you need a reminder of that, you know, go to Mark 13 and just see the promise of people leading us astray, even from within the church. Go to Mark 13 and read it. Read about how there will be tribulation and brother will turn against brother and children against parents. Things are just going to continue to get worse and worse. But you know what? We've got the promise. We've got the promise of the written word of God in John 5, 13. These things I have written unto you that you believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Our word of God, our living Bible, is the truth, and we believe it, and it is a promise to us. We have that promise of the living word where Christ says in John 6, 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me have eternal life. We have this promise in him that we celebrate this time of year. As we celebrate all year, this time of year, we celebrate the coming of that promise. And we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You have the Holy Spirit, believer, living inside of you. You should walk boldly in that, humbly yet boldly, in that we know that even though a government may try to hold us back from meeting together and loving one another and breaking bread with one another, that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us that yearns for fellowship, wants us to meet and love one another, serve our communities, serve one another in a way that glorifies God. So as I said at the beginning of this, I, I, you know, wake up American Christian, it's Christmas time. We should be pulling up all those cool Christmas songs uh, where we are spending time together, worshiping, listening to music that uh, makes us feel good about ourselves and makes us feel good about our God. We should be going to our church, worshiping together, loving one another, breaking bread one another in solidarity, and enjoying this Christmas season because it's fulfillment of promise. It's a time we should be happy. God bless all of you. Merry Christmas to all of you. And stay on the grind.
Two.